Hi friends! Welcome back to the Oscillator Stone. If this is your first time joining me, this is a bit of a radio show where I talk with various folks about everything magical in the metamodern epic. This month's episode features my good friend Greg Denver, a singer-songwriter who co-authors a blog called What is Metamodern with Linda Sariello. We recorded it ages ago, and I initially thought I lost the file, so we ended up re-recording it, and that will end up being a part two that'll come out eventually. Topics discussed today include epistemes, androgyny, capturing the rye, and anti-folk, all things relevant to the cultural epic we currently find ourselves in, metamodernity. I asked Greg what his three favorite songs are of all the songs he's written, and of course he responded with a playlist of way more than three songs, so I picked the four that I liked best. You can find the links to them in the show notes. Here's the first one. It's called All About You. You didn't like the first one It shocked you when you heard me say your name Say your name I tried to sound uncertain It's more interesting To make it sound that way Didn't like that way I am not a fool It's true It's all about you It's all about you Butterflies and roses Thorns and sugar pies And unicorns for me You gave it all to me And ocean tours And tasty tarts And stories I believed You and I both believed I am not a fool I won't break the rules It's true It's all about you It's all about you And the day I learned your name Was the same day That I learned to draw a curve And everybody watching was Excited by the prospect of a third And we think we've hit the beach now But the truth is that we've only hit a stage And the clowns in heaven's circus Are all clamoring to get back inside their cage
thought you hated me I only thought you didn't like the way The way I said your name You'd stayed with me Stayed with me Until I felt okay I guess I feel okay I am not a fool I won't break the rules Greg Denver, thank you so much for coming on. There's a lot of a uh, lot of stuff that we can talk about today. I really specifically appreciate having you on this podcast as a member of the sort of original metamodernism, which I am deeply interested in. So today we're going to talk about um, metamodernism as it kind of originated. Um, so I guess that leads to the first question. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, first, first, uh, what what is metamodernism in your view, and how does that uh, how does this original kind of metamodernism differ from uh, the metamodernism that my viewers might be slightly more familiar with, which is a sort of integral theory based understanding of social cultural development. Yeah. Um, so metamodernism, the way I use it, and the way the kind of people who are uh, surround me not surround me that makes it sound like i'm at the center but the people who, who <laughs> i surround are the people that I, I hang out with intellectually um is it's a description of a cultural phase that we're in already and have been in for um well you know almost 25 years like for a few a couple of years before the 2000 before 2000 like late 90s i think is when it kind of got first started really popping up um and you know it's it's viewed as a kind of successor to postmodernism, um and um we're finding it in you know we're, we're mainly locating it in the arts and in popular culture and television and music and film and literature and such, but also in um, just kind of like, you know, sometimes the ways people talk and relate to each other and senses of humor and um, in expressions of um, religion in the culture of different religious groups um, and sometimes in the culture of political movements or in the style of a politician. Um, so, you know, it's not just limited to the arts, but it's kind of easiest to see and analyze um, and extrapolate from when you look at art products. Um, so it's it's something that emerges from postmodernism and um, postmodernism is a cultural sensibility 
that's kind of focused on um, blurring presumed boundaries and bringing attention to context instead of just the thing, but but incorporating an understanding of the context and the um, environment that a thing is in. Um, and in terms of the art specifically, um, reminding the viewer that the thing they're looking at or listening to or um, participating in um, is a piece of art. In other words, that it is something that's constructed and that has a point of view um, rather than just sort of taking the thing um, at face value and and kind of forgetting that it's part of a bigger system. Um, and, and in general, postmodernism is concerned with the ways parts are connected into systems. Um, and all of this is a reaction to modernism, um, which was a, and continues to be a kind of way of looking at the world that um, seeks the advantages of um, like um, precise rationality. And, um, you know, whereas postmodernism wants to bring back looking at the system, modernism will often say like, hey, if we can just pull a particular piece out and look really closely at that for a little while, um, we can get a much more kind of clean understanding, objective understanding of what's really going on there. Um, and in the arts, um, modernism was a period that began around the turn of the 20th century, you know, maybe in the 1880s, 1890s, a little bit before the turn. Um, and um, it, it, again, it's complicated, like metamodernism, but um, often in the arts, what modernism wants to do is kind of scrape away the ephemera um, the surface and get to some kind of deeper truth underneath. Um, and in philosophy and in literary theory, uh, structuralism is a term that um, I consider to be kind of part of modernism. And that's, and, and that comes from anthropology as well. And it has to do with sort of um, looking past the surface and finding the structures underneath that are kind of universal and, and, um, kind of the deeper seat of the truth of what's going on in a thing. And so uh, modernist art um, often wants to sort of like reveal the structure underneath the surface. And um, that's particularly the case and obvious in modernist architecture, for example, um, or in painting um, instead of um, just like, instead of treating the painting as a way of depicting something that you can see out in the world, um, representational art, um, modern art is saying like, no, actually what you've got is a canvas and there's little specks of, you know, pigmented stuff, i.e. paint on the canvas that creates an aesthetic impression. Um, and that's what's really there so and so instead of pretending that you know there's this um mountain what we're really seeing is the stuff on the canvas and let's focus on 
that and make our art, you know, in that respect. Um, anyway, okay, so the postmodernists got interested in all the things that I mentioned, the context and um, um, and the, the the ways things connect to each other as part of a bigger system and all of that um, out of a sort of exhaustion with the sort of modernist um, microscopic um, and then the sort of um, hubris of modernism thinking that they can find absolute answers and postmodernists wanted to you know show like any answer kind of is going to have another question underneath it and you can keep going with that um, and that's reflected in the art of postmodernism. Metamodernism comes around when artists and their audiences began to feel exhausted with that sort of ongoing regression of questioning and context and relativism, um, often leaving no place for the actual human, the experience of human feelings and um, beauty and just kind of like the simple truths or simple simple emotional truths um, of being a person and so postmodern art tries to bring all of that stuff back but with the awareness of postmodernism's lessons about context and relativism um, and irony and and such um, and there's a famous quote by um, Timotheus Vermeulen and Robin van Deniker, who kind of are known for writing one of the first articles proposing that metamodernism is a thing. And they talk about metamodern cultural products often oscillating between modernist and postmodern qualities. So they have this whole list of them that I never can remember when I'm speaking off the top of my head. So I end up kind of making up my own little um, list. But you know, it's like oscillating between sincerity and irony, or between um, unity and fragmentation, or between um, hope and skepticism, um, and things like that. And so one marker of metamodern um, cultural products is that you will find yourself oscillating in your understanding, like, you know, you'll, you'll think about the song or the movie or whatever and be like, oh, that's like really surprisingly um, earnest and sweet. But then when you think about it a little bit more in that way, you're like, oh, no, they're totally fucking with us. It's like this totally ironic thing um, and they're they're laughing at us if we think it's too serious and then you think about it a little more and you're like no 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 um, obviously it's you know sincere so that oscillation happens as much in the viewer as it does in the the thing um, but that oscillation is not the only marker of metamodern cultural products that's really rich because it kind of I think in explaining it that way you're speaking to the relational nature that metamodernism has to postmodernism and modernism which is kind of one of its most defining features is that oscillating mm -hmm. part not necessarily the most important feature um but you could argue it's the introductory feature. Like if someone yeah. wants to start getting into metamodern uh, cultural products, as you mm -hmm. as you call, as you refer to them, um, 
I guess oscillation would be like the first tool to start understanding yeah. what it's like to be, you know, in metamodern relationship to two things. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I appreciate the sort of storytelling uh, that you, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that that question seemed to prompt. So this is, yeah, this is different from the sort of more Nordic ideology based uh, kind of metamodernism that people might be more familiar with um, here. What exactly uh, differentiates this uh, this older type of metamodernism from from the, the Nordic one? Um, yeah, I mean, my stance on this, um, and there are people who don't agree with me, is that they're not even really very similar at all. So it's not really like two different kinds of metamodernism or like, you know, one and then an offshoot or anything like that. To me, it's kind of just a sort of coincidental um, usage of the same term. Mm -hmm. um, like two groups of people who end up at the same spot on a beach. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That each group intended to go there to socialize with each other and then but they can hear each other's um, conversations and each other's music a little bit. But you'd be wrong if you thought like, oh, that's a one group of friends and they split off into two different groups. It's just like, no, it's, you know, anyway. Um, but so from what I have seen of the, you know, the Nordic metamodernism um, is it's really similar to integral theory from my perspective as an outsider to integral theory as well. Um, and it's concerned with um, developmental stage theories of human consciousness and of um, social, you know, the history of societies, I suppose. Um, and it might sound like the whole kind of little thing I just outlined about modernism and postmodernism. Modernism is a stage theory of sorts but even if it is um meta modern cultural products are not concerned with stage theory mm. you would say that meta modernism is a stage and then you might have a name for like the whole theory or model that includes modernism and postmodernism and metamodernism, but that model is not metamodernism. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, like, um, if you're a botanist, um, you name all these different kinds of plants, but botany is not a kind of a plant. Botany is just the Right, so metamodernism in that metaphor is one kind of plant. It's not, it's not the theory of all plants. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. It it it, it aligns more with my view of what metamodernism is. We're mostly in agreement here in terms. Yeah, of, and then the other yeah. the other way that it's different though, you know, at first I said <laughs> even if it is a stage theory, I mean, even if it has to do with a stage theory it's not the stage theory itself but it's right. even a different kind of a stage theory than um i mean the stage theory that we would be talking about here is not really the, of the same nature as as integral theory or spiral dynamics or any of those because um the, to me those seem to presume that there's a sort of natural 
unfolding that happens for all people uh, uh, you know as uh, and not all people would achieve all of the stages but if they do they go through it in this particular sequence so that there's something sort of inherent about the nature of consciousness that leads it through these stages that they propose um and then that that's also embodied in um the development of societies through history and that there's kind of always going to be this unfolding whereas modernism postmodernism and metamodernism is a description of culture in the west specifically um in the 20th and 21st centuries as it happens to have happened um and i think it's more like it's more similar to like the progression of fashion like you can make some, you know, pretty solid claims about um, trends in fashion over the last hundred years. Um, but you wouldn't say that one is more advanced than another. And you wouldn't presume that a person wearing a particular fashion or who enjoys a particular fashion has some kind of like higher cognitive level. Mm-hmm. than someone with another one and i think this you know so um people who appreciate metamodern cultural products are not necessarily more cognitively advanced in other ways they're they're just a person who's been exposed to that or a person who has emotional needs that are you know specifically satisfied by that particular kind of form or um you know etc so um whereas i think that the kind of integral um and nordic metamodernism kind of presumes that there's this sort of um progression where one stage is naturally kind of evolved that it, ha- that it evolution evolution i think is pertinent to the um nordic metamodernism but not so much in um the kind of metamodernism i'm talking about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thank you that's a huge one even within the um the nordic metamodernism world or the mm kind of uh, the people are still referring to it as the liminal web which is funny mm-hmm. to me because I don't think the guy who coined the term is even like that involved with it anymore but um, That's funny. <laughs> it is funny it's, but uh, there is even within that group uh, misunderstandings and uh, and uh, and reductionism as far as what you know how stage theories work mm-hmm. and uh you know, I, I recently was in a co- was in conversation with uh, a lot of people because I'm moderating the Meta Modern Spirituality Group now, um, as you know, um, mm-hmm. and, um, as some uh, listeners may already know as well. Um, and was curious how we can represent developmental uh, models in such a way that the inherent superiority inferiority dichotomy doesn't um, isn't implied. Because I do think that uh, development is more complex and it's not just linear and hierarchical and it's mm-hmm. not just you get better and better as 
time goes on. Um, because as you know, uh, the human body goes through developmental stages, um, uh, sort of growing and then a peak and then a, you slowly start to kind of decline right. as you age and die. And so that's technically developmental theory, but it's mm -hmm. not the kind that assumes that we're going to keep right. you know, going up and up and up and up and getting better and better and better. It's just things change and there's a particular pattern to how they change. And so I'm more of the school of thought that if metamodernism is a stage in, uh, you know, that you can chart on a developmental map, it's not necessarily uh, superior to postmodernism. It's just in the face of different life conditions. And um, that's also how I understand spiral dynamics. Um, but as I understand it, um, the, the idea behind spiral dynamics is that like information exists in the form of memes and then collectives of information are called meta memes so there's and then they would mm -hmm. they would assume that something like postmodernism or metamodernism is a meta meme whereas um this original school of thought right uh, concerning metamodernism because that idea of spiral dynamics is so fringe uh it's mm -hmm. not based on that idea of meta memes it's based on the idea of epistemes which uh yeah. or and, and and just to be clear um epistemes is kind of a term that my thinking partner linda seriello and i have sort of we've adopted mm -hmm. um and so people who hear about metamodernism through me you know mm -hmm. end up using the term epistemes but i often um like what fermulin and van deniker their term is structure of feeling mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i just needed to throw that out there to be fair kind of you know mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah but yeah. let's yeah i i like the word episteme so you know you and i can definitely use that term for one it's uh slightly less syllables so. yes yeah <laughs> and it's yeah. grammatically less complex like it's one word yeah instead of structure of feeling yeah yeah you gotta love those shortcuts when it comes to communication yeah. um really quickly i would like to uh just ask you what the difference between an episteme and a metamine is um I might not know enough about what a metameme is to really give an authoritative answer, but um, um, so let's see, to me, an episteme is, and it comes from Foucault, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. although Foucault did not use the term episteme to name postmodernism. Mm -hmm. In fact, he, even though Foucault is associated with postmodernism, it's more like people look at Foucault's work and deem it postmodern. Mm -hmm. But he himself was just talking about stuff. You know, he was just <laughs> talking about life. And when okay. he was introduced the idea of episteme, I don't think he was so much trying to use it to name the current era that he was in himself, but we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and but he called he used the term episteme to say it's the cultural unconscious of a period. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's an episteme, though it's the, the word is episteme, it's coming from epistemology. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, an episteme is the kind of collect like like Foucault says the cultural unconscious of a period with respect to what is our relationship to knowing and epistemology is kind of the philosophy of knowing um and so 
um, you can say tradition is everything that comes before modernism, right? And so in tradition, the relationship to knowing is um, what you what what's true is what's been handed down to you from elders or through canonical scripture um, or things like that. And um, the purpose of culture is to perpetuate what works, what has been shown to work for many generations or even thousands of years. And then modernism was a reaction against that. It was a kind of a liberation from that. And um, the modernist relationship to knowing is to say, um, we know the truth by using rationality and our individual minds to actually pull stuff apart and see what's really going on um, and not to accept the answers that have been given to us by elders. And the postmodern relationship to knowing is to say, um, that's, you know, it's, that's kind of cool what modernism came up with, but let's take it a step further and realize that it's all a lot more complicated than that. And, um, you can't know a thing in isolation from its context. Um, and you know, one, everybody has a point of view and no one of those points of view is privileged. Um, that, that that's a little bit of what the postmodern relationship to knowing is. And then the metamodern relationship to knowing is to say like, okay, that's all kind of important What the postmodern and the modern view, but, um, what we really know is what we feel and what's, what's of our interior experience. Like in the end, if you don't have that, there's no point. So if you're sophisticated postmodern relativism or your sophisticated modernist um, scientific process ends up leaving no place for the interior, you've missed, you've kind of missed the boat. A blue gardening glove and a pink gardening glove in the garden supplies with their fingers entwined in the tool shed they are near the old mason jars and the buckets and pails and some unopened mail I don't want to be the only one who sees the rabbit in the clouds it's definitely up there when you look at me I know that probably it'll always be the same as when I gardening glove and a pink gardening glove hidden in weeds around the base of a tree through winter and spring and summer again through wet and through dry through tears and through smiles anything I say is just another way to put it in the clouds that rabbit is up there Probably it'll always be the same as when I close my eyes.
A blue gardening glove and a pink gardening glove in the garden supplies with their fingers entwined. Um, so that's what an episteme is. It's it's a broad cultural response to the the question, and and individual people are maybe not self you know they're not going around thinking in the sort of intellectual terms that i just laid out they're just reacting in a kind of natural organic way um with this epistemic kind of structure behind them um and why don't you define a meta meme sure well my understanding of my understanding of meta meme comes from the spiral dynamics beck and cohen book Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit informed by what little I've read of Claire Graves's work, who mm -hmm. his work is sort of the original spiral dynamics, yeah. uh, which he described. And they both kind of describe, uh, he, Graves doesn't use the term metameme. I forget the term that he uses, but the okay. term that he uses basically differentiates value systems. And the yeah. value systems um, are a little bit about like a relationship to knowing um, in in his work, and then in the uh, Beck and Cohen version, it's more about uh, how people respond to their life conditions and what they decide is important based on those life conditions. So, while they are clearly different things, I would say that they probably do have a relationship to each other. That um, I'm not super clear on what that is yet, but um, yeah, you actually said say, you you triggered a thought in me when you said values. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that in Ken Wilber's integral, he, he, he calls them value memes, V memes. Isn't that true? The, yes. Well, and, uh, he calls them that because Beck and Cohen called them that. Okay. I think they were the first to label it as a, as value systems. And then they yeah. refer uh, V memes. Yeah. It's for values attracting meta memes, which is a complicated okay. thing that I won't go into right um, now, unless I absolutely have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So a difference that um, I've observed is that um, when Wilburians talk about the green meme, the green value meme, mm -hmm. they'll often want to equate that to postmodernism, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that they're really talking about the same thing as postmodernism, as postmodernism the way um, humanities scholars and art critics use the term. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll often describe the green meme is kind of, you know, the values of the 60s and 70s um, that is, you know, associated with like the kind of progressive political movement um, and things like feminism and, um, you know, anti-racism and um, environmentalism and they're kind of noticing a collection of values that seem to go together for a lot of people. Um, and postmodernism is not necessarily any particular set of values or positions. It's simply an interest and preoccupation with context instead of the center. And so there are left wing post, there's a postmodern left wing, there's a postmodern right wing, there's a postmodern apoliticalness 
that just thinks like, who cares about all that? It's just bullshit, you know? Um, and there's a modern left wing and a modern right wing, and there's a meta-modern left wing and a meta-right wing. So, so the epistemes that I'm interested in do not line up in any kind of easy way with specific um, value, sets of values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it seems like uh, episteme is much larger than a metameme. I think um, so. Because, you know, you could argue that uh, value systems exist within the context of particular epistemes, and they mm -hmm. can exist within multiple epistemes. Yeah. Um, like there are people who have traditional values, but they might have a metamodern aesthetic sensibility. I've never, I've never met that person, mm -hmm. but they might exist. <laughs> uh -huh. They might exist outside of my tiny little internet world. Right. We, but we there definitely are, there are definitely like evangelical, conservative evangelical Christians who have metamodern aesthetic sensibility. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, radical atheist, um, progressives who have a metamodern sensibility. Yeah. So we have to be careful not to collapse epistemes and metamemes, even if, you know, some people decide to use the same word for both Right. is kind of what I'm getting from this particular part of the conversation. And I would agree with that because I think, um, I think it's difficult to assume that uh, someone who might be developmentally complex in a particular way is going to have a specific set of aesthetic tastes. Right. Um, although there, uh, I do think that someone's aesthetic tastes can uh, point toward their deeper values, um, mm -hmm. but you can't kind of, it's like you can go one way, but you can't go hmm. the other way. You can't determine someone's aesthetic sensibilities based on their values, but you might be able to discern some of their personal mm -hmm. values from their aesthetic tastes. Um, for example, I was really interested in a lot of um, a lot of like Japanese uh, animations when I was a kid, and you know a lot of them have a lot of the sort of cultural uh, quirks of you know the Japanese cultural quirks in them that uh, the average American person would probably be really confused by. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's part of why, you know, anime is one of those, you either really like it or you, it's not your thing um, right. because you kind of have to adapt to the cultural differences in order exactly. to understand the content. And um, I was a child and I do think that a lot of the values that my parents had, um, a lot of the, uh, like they were very like internet sort of international. Mm. Um, they, they had a lot of friends and uh, clients and, and whatever from, Japan. So I do think that uh, that kind of maybe influenced my aesthetic sensibilities, like being around a particular cultural context. Um, my parents valued that culture. And so I kind of came to value it as well. Uh, right. and when I say value, I don't mean like a, like a ethical kind of values. Mm, I mean, appreciate. I mean, yeah, I mean like personal values. I think yeah. there's also there, there are different types of values right. as well. And so that complicates the conversation. Okay, but let's say another set of parents were also internationally oriented, mm -hmm. but their internationalism was more European. Mm -hmm. And so they exposed their children to, um, to, to European stuff and not to Japanese stuff at all. Mm -hmm. um, in both cases, the parents had the value of internationalism, mm 
mm-hmm. which was which affected the kid. Mm-hmm. But the second kid is not going to be kind of trained in anime the way you were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also totally anecdotal. So like, you know, because <laughs> I'm That's sure all that we there, really have. You know, I just as easily could have hated anime. And <laughs> right. And then you'd have a whole story about like my parents made me watch all this Japanese crap. And I, by the time yeah. I got all of it that I ever needed, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, let's talk about the article, um, on you have, so you have an article on medium. That's a really good resource for anyone who wants like a quick synopsis mm-hmm. of important elements of metamodern, uh, metamodernism in the arts. And yeah, it's kind couple- of a combination of a quick and dirty introduction to the met- metamodernism kind of as, as I found it. Mm-hmm. And then with that as a base, I propose a specific um, set of what I call methods for identifying metamodern things. And that's kind of my own particular take. Okay. Well, it, I find it like really, I, I continue to come back to it and I, it's been like well, a year now and I, I still reference it. I still bring it up when people ask like, well, what is metamodernism? I'm like, hmm. well, it depends on who you ask. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what I do is I'm like, here's, Here's the metamodernism that is uh, was born of integral theory, and then here's uh, what is metamodern.com. Like that's okay. every time someone asks what metamodernism is, I'm like, okay, well, do you want the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, some of the some of the uh, methods that you outline in this uh, article, which I will put in the show notes for anyone who hasn't seen it uh, and wants to take a look at it. Um, the most fascinating to me would be ironesty, uh, hyper self-reflexivity, performatism, uh, and there's minimalism and maximalism. You've now since changed uh-huh. uh, that to epic and tiny, which is yeah, I got feedback <laughs> on um, maximalism and minimalism being confusing, mm. uh, or and in a sense, I was taking terms that were understood to mean certain things in the mainstream of art theory and i was i had taken some liberties with them and so i fixed that by coming up with my own terms cool yes and there's a (laughs) subtext to what i just said Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyway never mind uh no i get it um so let's uh let's start with epic and tiny although i want to talk a little bit about some of these other characteristics so Sure. When did you uh, first come across an example of Epic and Tiny, or when did you first realize that this was a thing? Um, I think I kind of realized all of it sort of at the same time. And then when I sat down to write the article, um, it just kind of poured out. And, I, you know, I was like, I literally, I think I was like, I'm going to write one of those articles where they like, say like you know eight this or nine that or whatever and um and i didn't know and and so i just kind of just started listing off of the top of my head like what are some different um aesthetic methods that seem to be present in stuff that feels meta so okay so this is important so it's all based on empirical observation so it's like in the mid 2000s 
I started noticing that there was a bunch of stuff out there in the worlds of music and film and television and blah, 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 that felt different from the postmodernism stuff I had grown up with. And I felt before analyzing it, before defining it, before um, describing 11 different modern methods or anything like that, I just felt that things had something in common with each other. Um, and then, and, and, and Vermeulen and Van Deneker kind of came at it in the same way. And then like, you know, they thought about it and they, they were able to explain it in terms of the oscillation between modern and postmodern qualities. And I definitely saw that. And then I kind of saw other things, other ways that led to things being metamodern. So so it's starting with the feeling, the vibe, and then trying to come up with sort of a way to objectivize it. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I came up with Tiny and Epic, you know, which was originally minimalism and maximalism, it was just like I noticed like, okay, some things that feel metamodern um are very kind of small and retreating and intimate and unobtrusive and um, refraining from making big claims or taking up space in the world um, and they feel metamodern because they're celebrating um, interiority they're celebrating the felt experience of being in like this very kind of tiny cozy little space um and and so i called that minimalism and then i called it tiny the tiny and other things that feel metamodernism are big and exuberant and ostentatious and almost ridiculous and over the top and that stuff felt metamodern too even though it's kind of the opposite of the tiny stuff and that to me is feels metamodern because um they're saying like i need i need a huge canvas or i need um to you know in my music i need to have a string section and horns and every instrument possible and like ripping guitar solos and everything like that to actually express the depth of feeling that i actually have um here and um and so, you know, either one of those or oscillating between them um, can be metamodern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, can you give an example of something that oscillates between Epic and Tiny, like one piece that does both? Um, yeah, I think that we've talked about how we've both seen the film um, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And we both like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. No, I saw it. I remember seeing it when I was much, yeah, when it basically when it first came out, uh, I saw it. Okay. Um, there was a guy that sold illegal DVDs like three blocks from my house when I was like 14. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and my parents bought it because um, the little girl on the cover looked cute. And then there was this giant extinct animal yeah. in front of her <laughs> well, just... just this tiny girl in this epic bowl yes. yeah that's yeah. that's mm -hmm. what i was gonna say yeah um, yeah i would agree um would and agree. so you know 
for the benefit of the listeners or to remind you um the the kind of story the setting of it is it's in a sort of off the grid community um in louisiana i guess near new orleans but i'm not sure but it's you know it's it's in the bayou yeah. and um it's people he basically lives in a slum in the south it's basically a slum but yeah. it's a slum that's on the water mm-hmm. and there are um poor white people and poor black people living together and what they all have in common is that they're scrounging out a lifestyle and they're scrounging out a community and then it's like this is a cliche i suppose but you know they may be materially poor but they're definitely emotionally rich like there's a lot of meaningful connection between all of the people and the um what is then threatens to disrupt this life that is working for them is um the city is going or the county or you know whatever the government is is going to open up the dam to move water around you know for some reason that will benefit most of the people and they're not it's not with cruelty towards the people that live in this place it's kind of they're just not they don't know they're there um and um the little girl has um a father who well i don't want to give too much plot away (laughs) Um, but but it's told through the eyes of a little girl who's like five years old and so she's she's tiny and a lot of the details that are important to her are tiny but she's dealing with this epic situation where there's going to be a flood and then to make it even more epic um, the film brings in these mythical creatures called aurochs as i recall that are huge and Mm -hmm. i think the visual that you saw on the cover was the little girl facing off Mm -hmm. with the huge um aurochs and um and so the movie and 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 the background on the aurochs it like is that they're literally like the manifestation of this, you know, long standing ancient prophecy. So that's again epic. So it's kind of like you've got this juxtaposition of details that are only important to this little girl interfacing with this sort of like huge mythic development. And then in midway between those two, there's kind of the actual like practicalities of the flood and how the people are going to survive this change to their environment Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i remember too that like there's all of that but uh one important feature is the little girl is the narrator yeah like like she's uh so everything is filtered through her child like perspective in which everything feels epic when you're a child even tiny things and so we're not just oscillating between this objectively epic thing and this objectively tiny thing but we're for we're we're kind of the whole thing is filtered through uh, a tiny person where, you know, yeah. everything looks epic, but we're, you know, possibly adults watching it. And so from our this... point of view, it looks tiny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's a lot of oscillations going on uh, with that movie that are, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, that's a great, that's a great example. Thank you. Um, I, another question I have is around ironicity. 
ironesty or sincere irony, mm -hmm. which uh, might be the same thing. I would argue that they're not exactly mm -hmm. the same thing, but um, we could conflate them for the purposes of sure. saving time if you want. <laughs> uh, and new sincerity. So these are two uh, of my, I guess, two methods that, in metamodernism that I think are really fascinating and interesting. Um, new sincerity is uh, one that I was more familiar with uh, when I first started getting into metamodern art through um, emotional hardcore, uh, aka mm -hmm. emo, mm -hmm. which is very, very much new sincere, but there's mm -hmm. also a, a clear lineage to uh, hardcore and punk, right. which I guess would be more in the era where postmodernism was more. Yeah, popular. well, I mean, I think that I'm. Mean People don't usually talk about emo um, as examples of metamodern, but I think it is. Um, yeah. And I, I think, think it that is. it's exactly what you just said, that it has its origins in the postmodern hardcore punk. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, you start there with um, a music that just wants to disrupt. Mm -hmm. um, that's mm -hmm. the punk. Mm-hmm. And then the emo, it's, you know, it's emotional. Like, and, and punk rock has all these different kinds of core, speed core, mm -hmm. you know, this core, mm -hmm. that core, death core, I don't know what other kinds of core there are. Hardcore <laughs> was the first. Um, and so emo was like starting with the sort of aesthetic um, background of hardcore punk, but suddenly now allowing a sincere emotion to be expressed mm -hmm. whereas that would have been seen as corny or capitalist or commercial or something like that um in the classic postmodern punk era right yeah i would agree i would agree with that and uh for me how i kind of came to the conclusion that emo was metamodern was uh actually in the other direction so tracing uh indie back mm -hmm. certain certain sort of uh, types of indie back to uh yeah. the roots of right. emo which you know then leads to punk um right so indie is you know a lot of i, I would say a lot of metamodern music would also be considered indie indie yeah. pop indie rock indie folk mm -hmm. all of that stuff a lot of it falls in the category of metamodern and a lot of it gets uh it's uh anti-folk as well a lot of them kind of get their inspiration from emo even though emo didn't really the original kind of uh, 90s early 2000s emo didn't really take off but uh yeah yeah my take is that isn't yeah. that they all i wouldn't say they all um took their inspiration from emo i would say emo is one strand with others side by side that all took their original inspiration from the punk sensibility and then departed from that in order to bring back in some kind of affect and emotional sincerity. I guess it would be more and, accurate to say that emo is like a shadow influence on a lot of various okay. uh, thing, uh, types of music that would then go on to be considered metamodern. Mm -hmm. And as in addition to what you just said, where like a lot of the things yeah. just straight worth straight um can be traced straight to hardcore but not filtered through emo mm -hmm. um, um 
<laughs> um, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I think of Elliot Smith, mm, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. you know, Elliot Smith was already on a trajectory towards some level of success with Heat Miser, mm -hmm. which is just a very much a kind of brash, loud punk rock band, and. Um, you know, there are quotes of Elliot Smith explaining why he started doing his own music because the music he was already doing pretty well with did not have room for all of the range of emotions that he, it only had room for anger and, and, and disruption. And it didn't have room for all this other stuff. So he went way back, stripped it way down to the acoustic and the tiny, um, and kind of started exploring these more kind of intimate, intricate, um, emotional states. Um, and then eventually worked his way back up to including orchestrations that were epic, you know? Um, but Elliot Smith's acoustic music is different from the sort of like, um, conventional like acoustic folk music or whatever because he had that punk rock background mm -hmm. and my understanding of anti-folk is the same thing it's like mm -hmm. yes it's people sitting there strumming an acoustic guitar but they had a punk rock sensibility somewhere in their past yeah yeah totally. so they're not joan it's not joan Baez. you know it's not yeah. <laughs> It's not your right. parents' folk music or your grandparents' folk music. Right. And it's even called anti-folk. I think yeah. the term anti-folk in itself is, is I think, I, I didn't have to think too hard when I was like, is anti-folk metamodern? Yes. Um, you know, because folk is meant to kind of speak to um, uh, more general narratives. You know, there are these ballads, there are these, like, if you look at, like, not just 60s hippie folk but like folk uh, from a, right, a the original sense folk. yeah the like traditional the original folk traditional yeah folk. traditional traditional folk is very um very much uh, telling stories that are general about universal. characters and yeah universal and anti-folk is, is very interiorly focused it's very yeah. um about taking the the tiny self and making it epic so to speak right. through through one's sort of artistic sensibility so and the anti aspect of anti folk has the disruption of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the challenging, okay. you know, saying like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like we're already talking about uh, what we consider to be meta modern. So uh -huh. I'm going to go ahead and ask you uh, about a couple different um, things that I believe are meta modern um, and, and get your opinion on them. So okay. we'll start with solar punk. Is solar punk metamodern? Um, that's a good question. Um, okay, so here's what I understand solar punk to be. Mm -hmm. um, solar punk is originally a genre of fiction. It's mm -hmm. a literary genre. And the name is a takeoff on cyberpunk which was a genre of science fiction or speculative fiction. And cyberpunk was a very kind of classically postmodern 
genre. Um, that was dystopian and usually the stories start like the book starts in the middle of the story. Like it doesn't really have like, um, um, exposition and an explanation of the world building. Like you just are dropped in. Um, and, um, so it has a kind of dark tone to it and solar punk was writers, novelists saying like, let's use some of the methods and techniques of cyberpunk, but let's have it be positive and affirming and, and hopeful. Um, and, um, then somewhere along the line, some people took the idea of being positive and affirming and hopeful and turned that into kind of a social movement that does not really have much to do with science fiction or speculative fiction at all. Really? I think.
I don't know a ton about solar punk. I've seen like a couple different presentations on it and I'm in a couple different discussion groups about okay. it. Okay, and so I, I'm curious in those discussion groups, do they talk about novels? They don't talk about novels, but they talk about um, they talk about a world that I think uh, would be considered cyberpunk, but it's a utopia. So I wonder if people, the people in those particular groups actually mm -hmm. did read the novels and then they're, they are inspired by that kind of world building and want to apply that world building to our actual reality. Mm -hmm. Or if they just like, cause when you Google solar punk aesthetic, it looks like, uh, you know, green cities and right. people wearing, wearing these kinds of clothes, like there's solar punk fashion, which uh -huh. is like sustainable fashion that looks a little bit, um, it's almost like someone got in a time machine and took someone who was like a peasant in the 17th century uh -huh. and brought them here, gave them a cell phone or something like that, uh -huh. right? So it's a little bit like, it almost looks, the solar punk that I'm familiar with almost looks more like steampunk than it does cyberpunk or like a combination yeah. of steampunk and cyberpunk. So I didn't actually know that it was first a genre of speculative fiction. Right. So that's and same with steampunk. Steampunk, same thing. Steampunk well, that, yeah. is yeah. originally a derivation of cyberpunk, but instead, instead of using like futuristic technologies, let's imagine a world where technology never progressed beyond the steam engine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what would a world like that be? Mm -hmm. um, but it was fiction it was like novels um but then that quickly jumped out of the literary world and you know in what like around 2012 ish maybe mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know you had people running around dressed larping as a yeah and they would call yeah. themselves steampunks yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and <sighs> you know and so i think solar punk kind of jumped out in the same way Mm -hmm. So is it metamodern? Um, I think that that original literary genre, solar punk, is metamodern kind of in the same way that um, emo is, mm -hmm. in that it has the like technical um, aspects, the aesthetic aspects of cyberpunk, which is a postmodern thing, but flipped around to espousing positive affirming kind of modernist sort of um aspirations um mm -hmm. but i think that when solar punk then jumps out of being a literary genre and into a lifestyle and a movement mm -hmm. i don't think it really retained much of that connection to the cyberpunk postmodern thing so it's really from what I can see, it's just sort of a revival of um, 1960s utopianism. Mm -hmm. And it's not really metamodern. It's just revival of, of optimism. Uh, okay, cool. So I guess what I'm gleaning from that is it depends <laughs> it mm -hmm. depends on what you uh -huh. mean by solar punk <laughs> yeah. would be your, would be your answer uh yeah. okay moving on now to androgynous fashion is androgynous fashion metamodern um that depends too <laughs> um 
So, or rather, that's not really the question I wanted to ask you. Uh, is is androgyny as a sort of self identification? Like, is is the the sort of increasing popularity of gender yeah. nonconformity is that yeah. kind of modern? Um, sure. Um, no, I mean I think it's interesting because when androgyny is so I don't think androgyny is either like metamodern or postmodern or anything. It's almost sort of one of these things where you could see an aspect of each episteme in it. Um, so when androgyny is like, um, this is the way I need to present myself in order to actually align with and show my interiority mm -hmm. and in order to, for me to feel comfortable in myself, that's mm -hmm. metamodern when androgyny is motivated and in one person it could be all of these things i'm not saying like so and then when androgyny is motivated by like i want to disrupt um unexamined binaries um and, and and blur boundaries that society wants to impose on me um that's postmodern but see how that's not really talking about the self or the interiority it's talking about the outside and when androgyny is saying like you don't have to accept traditional roles that have been around for thousands of years you can do something in your own new way that's modern yeah but you're also kind of saying that um like the meta modern person, if they're doing it for their interiority, you can assume that they've also kind of considered the modern and postmodern perspectives. Probably, as well. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is this is rampant speculation on my part. And, <laughs> Not allowed. <laughs> um, so people will probably shoot me down on this, but um, as someone who, like, my young adulthood was in the eighties um, and nineties, in the mm -hmm. peak of the postmodern period. And I think that there was a lot more emphasis on that sort of postmodern, like blurring of boundaries and challenging of accepted binaries and, and all that um, in androgyny at the time. And that now there's more of an emphasis on the this is who I am kind. And so I see that as a progression, you know, historical progression that correlates with the general progression to metamodernism. I, the reason why I was curious about androgyny um, and metamodernism is because I remember reading an article, uh, I can't remember who it was by, but she was talking about androgyny at uh, androgynous fashion uh, in sort of a metamodern way. No, mm -hmm. this doesn't make sense. I think I know what you, I think mm -hmm. I get, you get what I mean, but I'm going to rephrase it for okay. the purposes of, uh, for the sake of the audience, um, she was talking about uh, how androgyny ma manifests in a metamodern way in fashion. And it was more of, I guess, what you would describe as metacute, but not exactly uh -huh. that. Um, and we can talk a little bit about metacute if you want, um, where uh, these adults are kind of, androgyny is more of an expression of, of, oh. child, of childlike yeah. innocence more so yeah. than it is like a trying to blur boundaries or trying to yeah. liberate 
you know, oneself from tradition. So that like, kind of yeah. androgyny is metamodern. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's yeah. another kind of androgyny that I think, you know, would potentially be scary to children. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> right. Wait, which, which, what kind? I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> a, a, so really leaning into the mm -hmm. sexualization Mm. but doing it in a way that defies and troubles expected gender roles. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So would you say that the, that is also metamodern, like leaning more into the, into the, what you just said, or I'm thinking of a kind of postmodern postmodern vibe. Okay. That is what I mm -hmm. saw a lot in my young adult mm -hmm. and teen years in the 80s and 90s oh yeah that that stuff did scare me when i was a child uh -huh. <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah yeah the sort of the sort of androgyny of of metamodernity is trying to kind of reduce one's self like uh not reduce oneself trying to um negate one's secondary sex characteristics in mm -hmm. order to kind of um express this childlike neutrality right um this purity uh, you can almost say um which as opposed to heavily embodying mm -hmm. different kinds of secondary or or right. cultural sexual characteristics right together yeah, yeah. This uh, leads me to the, I guess, final one, which is a uh, characteristic of metamodern art that I myself came up with, although mm -hmm. I'm probably not the, I, I sort of coined a term for it for mm -hmm. when I'm talking about it, but I'm probably not the only person who noticed it if it is in fact metamodern. Uh, I'm referring to it as feral innocence. And I mm. can, I can. That already sounds metamodern. <laughs> doesn't it yeah. like, you know but i can describe really quickly what that is and give it sure. give it an example the feral innocence is it's a little bit like that postmodern disruptiveness but one mm -hmm. is doing it in a way that's uh non-threat it's so non-threatening that it's threatening if that makes uh -huh. sense so an example of this is uh crackhead barney is a performance artist who kind of runs around uh where she sometimes wears a diaper she sometimes wears a bikini mm. um and she will wear a mask or a wig and she's kind of playing on this uh, stereotype about black women which is that huh. you know they're they're loud and they have like obnoxious weaves and stuff and so she's she's <laughs> basically like she's basically like a clown right uh -huh. she's 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 this uh this weird version of a clown and she runs around and she just asks people questions but she asks them in a way that a kid would ask them mm. and they're terribly inappropriate questions uh -huh. <laughs> um uh and i can i can do a link to one of her performances in the show uh -huh. notes um but uh there's let's see um in one of her interviews uh the interviewer asked her what age she was and she said tell them i'm six was her <laughs> response to that and so that's kind of that's one example of feral innocence uh another example of feral innocence what i like that, you know what i like about yeah. that maybe it's obvious yeah. but um, yeah go for it you didn't just say six she said tell them <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like it might be not true or it might be true or right <laughs> 
Yeah, it's funny. It's and funny. that there's a sort yeah. of imagines of them out there. Uh huh. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get to talk about performatism that much, but um, one thing that's interesting to me about her is that she does her interview in character. Mm -hmm. She didn't. She didn't talk about her character in the interview. She mm -hmm. was her character in the mm -hmm. interview. She she didn't you know talk about it and as if it wasn't her. She yes. just it is that person. Um, so yeah, that's that's she's kind of blurring the lines between uh, uh, performing a role and being mm -hmm. who she really is there, which I think is really uh, really cool. Um, yeah, well, another example of feral innocence would be so there's a scene in Moonrise Kingdom, which is an iconic Wes Anderson film, right? Um, where the kids are like dancing on the beach and um, they're like in their underwear, and she's like, You can touch my chest if you want. And he's like, Really? <laughs> <laughs> and he just like sticks his arms out like a classic 12 year old boy touching yeah. boobs, yeah, um, like not knowing what he's doing at all. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then you know they fall asleep together um, in the in the tent in their underwear, and that's when they're found by the uh -huh. by their parents. And the parents open the the thing, and her. I remember her mom like unzips the tent door, and she sees them cuddling, and she's like, like so offended that they're right. cuddling in their underwear, as if like something really sexual had happened. So it's which, like you know the so audience it's like, knows it's not the case. The actuality of it is it's very innocent and childlike mm -hmm. and not sexual, right? But from the mom's point of view, it's, you know, disturbingly sexual. Yeah. And from the kid's point of view, they probably think like, ooh, I scored, you know, like. <laughs> right, yeah. I got to first base or uh -huh. whatever, or yeah. halfway to first base. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it's right. kind of all of those things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. The reason why that scene is so artful is because it points to the difference between, um, trying to relate to a kid as an adult versus being an actual kid mm -hmm. and then also being an observer of that tension right um and i would say the act was fairly innocent but more more so than the act the actual scene was fairly innocent as a result mm. of that kind of all these perspectives and their relationship you're saying feral yes fairly yeah. yes because <laughs> somebody might think you're just saying fairly innocent <laughs> oh right yes feral so f-e-r-a-l-l-y feral yeah, like a feral cat yes thanks for clarifying or helping um, me clarify. i also think that like that you know of all of wes anderson's films moonrise kingdom is the most this way although mm -hmm. uh, metacute um <laughs> is part of all of his stuff but especially in moonrise kingdom because mm -hmm. um it's for adults it's like for an adult viewer, but it's all through the lens of children. Mm -hmm. But like, like it's not made for kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's using the device of a sort of child's narrative in order for adults to get in touch with their in a sense an interiority that's my view on it yeah that's i share that view i would say um i would say it does that uh i because the first time i watched it i was not an adult i was a teenager and oh. the 
second time I watched it, I was an adult. And my responses to the the, the movie were very different both mm. of those times. Um, so it's And I love doing that. It's the same when I read uh, Catcher in the Rye, which mm. I wonder if Catcher in the Rye is not a modern. But anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? it's, very, it's very interior, but it's, yeah. he's an unreliable. I think something about unreliable narrators skews in a, in a metamodern uh, mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to explain necessarily that right now. Um, I might even cut this part out because it's not relevant to the conversation. Um, um, no, but I'm, I had not thought of Catcher in the Rye in that way, but I think you might be right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it That's could at the very least be pre-metamodern. I read somewhere that tech, like the term metamodern pops up even as early as the 60s, but I might be wrong. Um, um, well, the term remember. metamodern popped up. The earliest I think anybody's found was 1975. Okay. And it's, um, it was used by this guy named Savarzada. Um, and he was a literary critic mm. and um, first of all like he didn't make a big thing of it it's just sort of like a word he sort of threw out on the way to making some other argument in one article mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but um, he was describing aesthetics that came to be called postmodern once the term postmodern really got widely adopted but postmodern was not a widely adopted term yet. So as he was observing things that other people were observing, he, his term that he coined was metamodern, but he was using it to mean what we now say is postmodern. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That is there is, but there are things that there are, are art products that have metamodern characteristics, but came in history prior you know sometimes much prior to the period that we call mm-hmm. metamodern and i use the yeah. term proto-metamodern yeah I, like well that. that's what i would probably call catcher in the rye as yeah and i think now that you've brought it up catcher in the rye probably is proto-metamodern yeah <laughs> um cool. and something i should reread because i read it you know in high yeah. school as a required reading and yeah. it really um changed me you know i was like mm-hmm. oh there's other people who think this way and you know feel this way but i haven't revisited it and it'd be salinger was one of my favorite writers at one point when i was Mm. really young it was weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh (laughs) being Um, this like precocious yeah yeah i I like jd salinger (laughs) yeah i was a little precocious (laughs) um but um yeah everybody else hated it but I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. And then I read some other, some of his short stories in college. And uh, yeah, I think there's something, something proto-metamodern about his, his style of writing in the way that he focuses on characters uh, or the way that he implies things through Mm -hmm. character dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I would have to probably reread some of that stuff too, to get a clear view of why I've I just, yeah, I get that. That's also how I, you know, decide that I believe things are metamodern is first I feel it. Right. And then I try to figure out what it is that I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, and of course it's not always accurate, but mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> it, it thing, a thing can have metamodern qualities and not necessarily be wholly metamodern. I think mm-hmm. you, you mentioned this in one of our conversations in the past of like, mm-hmm. just because 
someone has like one or two art pieces that have metamodern qualities doesn't make them a metamodern artist. Whereas like if these qualities are continuous across right. all of their art pieces and they're intentionally working with these qualities, then mm -hmm. then they can then they've earned the title. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they usually don't like most artists don't even want a title. Like they don't want to be. Right. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. So the safest the, yeah. thing is just to talk about metamodern art, not metamodern right. artists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My mom's a painter and she's very like, I just do yeah. what I feel like doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then other people categorize it as abstract because right. that's. Well, you and I are both songwriters. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it's not even hard to compartmentalize myself this way. It just happens naturally. When when a song's coming out, like mm -hmm. it comes out how it wants to come out. Right. And then later I can go, oh, that's kind of cool. It turns out it, somebody would probably call that metamodern, you know, and I'll be mm -hmm. pleased because I care about the metamodernism thing. <laughs> but if a song comes out and it's not metamodern, like I don't care. Like I still, yeah. Like, if it's a good song, it's a good song, you know. Right. Like I don't strive to be metamodern in yeah. my life. Yeah, me either. I just have really big feelings and I'm in my head a lot and that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I just, yeah, as a consequence of my personality, yeah. I've, I have been attracted to metamodern things. Yeah, and that's a, that would be a really good way to describe metamodern. Um, mm -hmm. Big feelings and in your head a lot. <laughs> so what's your opinion on this feral innocence thing that I'm, I yeah. spoke about? Uh, do you have, can you think of any other uh, films or TV shows or art pieces that you you say would be fairly innocent. Um, two things come to mind, and they're both probably a little bit off from what you have in mind. But um, the mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers the hockey team is is gritty. It's this it's this character called Gritty. Are you familiar with that? Oh. oh. I only know about Gritty because a colleague of mine who writes about metamodernism and is from the Philly area, um, she loves Gritty and she has explained why Gritty is metamodern. But um, so Gritty is this just like sort of weird monster looking thing with like lots of loose ends and like flying hairs and stuff coming off of it. <laughs> and it's, it's androgynous and it's un like Gritty's not gendered and um gritty skates and um it's kind of got this feral monster-like quality to it and then obviously this very innocent um childlike aspect to it and then there's all these other reasons yeah. why it's metamodern that katie explains that i can't do justice to but um so that's gritty and wow. then another one <laughs> i'm looking at look photos up. yeah i'm looking at photos <laughs> i love him or yeah. it or them yeah, or them. Oh my god. <laughs> Z it, Zay. Maybe it, but Zay. also them. Z yeah. 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 I love here. <laughs> um, yeah. and then the other thing that came to mind, and maybe this doesn't qualify, but as soon as you said feral innocence, um, okay, well, there's a show called Barry, and um Barry is a hitman. Um, but he's like really sweet. And you you it, you cannot help but identify with him and root for him, um, in spite of the fact that he kills all these people. And mm -hmm. at one point, um, 
he encounters this little girl who's like the daughter of another hitman type criminal person. And um, she's a killer. She's like maybe like eight or nine years old. And when she's in kill mode, um, she becomes feral and she she's on all fours and she leaps around like a wild animal. And she's really hard for Bill Hader's character to fight because she does it like a kid. Like she just is like this combination of a she 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 can get him in places because of her kid like nature if that just makes sense mm-hmm. the way she can like bite and um crouch and leap and squirm around um so maybe more on the feral side mm-hmm. than the innocent mm-hmm. side but it is what first popped into my head when yeah yeah you said. i would i would say <clears throat> the second example is closer to what I was thinking of than the first, oh, but okay. I would say that they all probably, because you know me, I'm really broad with terminology all uh-huh. the time. So, so I'm like, yeah, those work too. <laughs> right. They're feral, they're feral, a, yeah. they're feral yeah. innocent adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are, there are feral qualities and there are also innocent qualities right. in all three of the examples that we Mm-hmm. collaboratively you right. know um so but they're obviously they're different from each other but you know and it's a small category it's like something i kind yeah. of that popped into my head and i haven't i don't have a you know like a laundry list of examples or anything yeah. so. but i think it no i think it sounds metamodern mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah definitely feels metamodern mm-hmm. or i guess a lot of the Another example would be a lot of the kind of uh, lead singer, female lead singers mm. of like uh, a lot of, I guess, metamodern musical acts like mm-hmm. uh, Imogen Heap or mm-hmm. Amanda Palmer. They both mm-hmm. come off to me as fairly innocent. Amanda Palmer is more on the feral side and mm-hmm. Imogen Heap feels more on the innocent side, but they both right. have this kind of wildness about them right. that uh they but then they express this kind of genuine pure sincere Uh um and uh i think of billy oh billy eilish is a really good example too yeah um and aurora as well she's a norwegian singer that i consider to be metamodern for a couple and she's also described herself as metamodern really it's canon yeah (laughs) in one of her interviews she describes herself as having a metamodern sensibility And I, before I knew that, I was like, that's metamodern and then somehow. She, yeah. And then she was like, yes, you're right. Person <laughs> I don't know and never met. <laughs> uh, I feel like we could have a, a whole conversation about um, hyper self-reflexivity and whether or not it has to do with cognitive or ego development or okay. both or neither. Um, yeah. So if you are open to eventually talking about yeah. that at some point, that'd be really fun. that was fun yeah that was really fun thank you so much is the liminal web too land grabby in next month's episode i talk about exactly that with ben hennessy garside a socialist landlord yes you heard that correctly he's also a music teacher with a love of ambiguity and metaphor thanks for listening to the oscillator stone featuring greg dember of whatismetamodern.com To check out more of Greg's music or any of his articles, check out the links in the show notes. 
If you're a paid subscriber, you're in luck. At the end of this month will be the first ever metamythological practice group. If you don't know what that is, go ahead and check out the link at the very end of this post. I've got one more of Greg's songs for you here to close things out. This one's called 94. Thanks again. Take care, friends. Bye.